The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Hi there, I'm Lou Blaustein, your host for Green Sports Pod. Today's episode five is an experiment for us, one that I'm really excited about. Lily Brazel is a very busy woman these days. She is a member of the Australian national field hockey team, hoping to represent her country in the Olympics next summer in Tokyo. She is a supporter of EcoAthletes, the nonprofit I helped launch in April with the mission of inspiring and coaching athletes to talk confidently about climate change. The 25-year-old resident of Perth is also the founder of Stature Clothing Australia, an uber-sustainable performance apparel startup. And if that's not enough, Brazel also hosts the State of Us podcast. So, I asked Lily not long ago if I could interview her for Green Sports Pod. Her response was to ask if she could interview me for the State of Us podcast. And that's when we came up with this experiment, to interview each other on the same podcast. Call it the State of Green Sports Pod. I'll kick things off by asking you, Lily, how you came to launch a startup in the hyper-competitive performance apparel market while also pursuing your Olympic dreams. The two sort of came hand in hand. When I debuted for the Hockey Roos, that's the name of our Australian hockey team, when I debuted for them back in 2017, the first day that I got my Australian uniform, it's obviously a really exciting time. You're finally getting this green and gold uniform that you've been dreaming of since you were a little girl. And when we got like a really big suitcase of clothing, and when I opened it and pulled out all each and every item, at the end of that experience of opening all of the, the pieces of uniform, there was a huge pile of plastic bags left to the side. And when I saw all this plastic waste, I was quite confronted and upset by it because I spoke about this previously in one of the first episodes of the State of Us podcast the previous sort of five years of my life, I'd been quite aware of my impact on the environment. Had been, I'd been living plastic-free. I'd gone vegetarian, pescatarian, vegan, plant-based. I was living minimally. I was really aware of my footprint. And now all of a sudden I had all of this plastic waste to deal with. And so in that moment, I was like, hmm, surely this can be done better. What other solutions are out there? What what isn't out there? What can I look to create? And sort of from that moment of frustration and seeing all that plastic, I started to research new ways of <clears throat> packaging things, how sports clothing is made, what it could be made out of instead, where it was manufactured, what impact that had, the impact clothing has at the end of its life. So the waste of it, how can it be recycled, repurposed, regenerated into something new or back into the ground? And 
Yes, that's kind of where the idea came from. It came from my involvement in the hockey ruse. But were you, in your academic life, did you study textiles or manufacturing? Was that something that you were already geared up to? Or this was just something that came to you when you opened up that package? I really wish I had studied textiles or manufacturing or fashion design. I'm really passionate about it. And at high school, one of my electives was textile design. I sewed a pillowcase at school. But other than that, my studies have been in, I did one year of architecture and then I ended up moving into a Bachelor of Arts in politics. So I had no backgrounds at all in textiles, in garment manufacturing. So I had to research all of that as well because whenever I got asked a question from a supplier or a manufacturer, I didn't know the answer, so I had to research it. But I also wanted to know as much as I could as well so I could make the best decisions around sustainability and what was also going to be the best way to make a garment for performance as well. What sustainable aspects are in the Stature product and what can you say about the packaging as well? The way we operate is within a closed loop. So we aim to be a circular fashion label. So that means any resources that we bring in aims to stay within our circle, our system for life, whether that's our operation system or it's able to go back into the earth. So that means all the resources we get in, they're either natural ones that can be composted back into the earth or they've been sustainably made either from a recycled material such as ocean waste that's then turned into a nylon fabric or plastic waste from landfill that's turned into a fabric as well. So we are really diligent with the fabrics that we source to ensure they have really high sustainable certifications as well such as blue sign approved or organic cotton as well and then our manufacturing is all done in Australia this was a really important part of the process the garment industry the fashion industry is the second at risk industry for modern slavery and so being able to solve no we're not solving it but have a better approach to manufacturing of sporting apparel in Australia was really important because human impacts, as you know, still have an environmental impact. There's a chain there. Plus also if you're importing it, the travel from or the carbon deal coming from say Malaysia or Bangladesh isn't as severe as it is if you're shipping it to the United States, but still it's more carbon involved in that than if you're making it in Melbourne or Perth. Exactly. The footprint of carbon emissions is also significantly cut down by keeping it more local. Then after the manufacturing, there's the apparel, which has been amazing for performance, but how we package that and deliver it to our customers is completely plastic free. So everything that we use during the shipping and handling process is a compostable material, thanks to a really cool company called The Better Packaging Co. that have developed these really cool compostable mailing bags that you can just chuck in your home compost and they'll degrade and that's an australian company too they're australian new zealand company i think they were founded in australia though i might correct me if i'm wrong there but i think australia and then the sort of big sustainability aspect is then the end of life of the garment so what do you do with your t-shirt when it's damaged when you can't wear it anymore 
I keep wearing mine anyway. <laughs> well, that's great. That's the most sustainable thing to do, to just keep wearing what you have. My wife may disagree, but that's what I do. <laughs> well, I'm on board with you. So to either to make the garment last longer, we have a system in place to repair the garment. So I don't know if there's a hole in it or stitching is damaged, being able to patch it up, repair. So our customers have their garments for longer. Then if it's completely irreparable, how can we repurpose and salvage this material to make a new product maybe we can pull the garment apart and make a tote bag or something a bit more simple so this fabric doesn't go to waste and then if it can't be repaired or repurposed how can then we recycle this fabric because at the moment most of our fabrics are a recycled synthetic and synthetic won't break down even if it's come from a recycled source So what are we doing with this synthetic fabric? Can we take it to a textile recycling mill to then have it turn into a new fabric again? So it is truly a circular company, a circular operation. Yeah, but I mean, there's still so much more to make it even more circular and I'm really excited to see where that will go. It's definitely not perfect at the moment, but there's so many more parts we can pull in to make it as a tight closed loop as possible. And so how is the performance of the fabric? Because I would imagine that athletes are very particular, whether they're athletes at the Olympic level or just weekend athletes or someone who just plays, you know, knocks around, kicks a soccer ball every once in a while. Yeah, this was a really big part of it for me as well. I didn't want to just nail the sustainability side of it. It had to be able to work for athletes for performance. Sorry. It really came down to not just the fabric, but the fit of it as well. How is it going to fit and work for an athletic body? How is it going to move with you? But the fabrics that I've been able to find have been incredible in terms of breathability and moisture wicking. We have our men's T-shirt has this amazing treatment on it called Chidosante, which is a treatment of the exoskeleton of shellfish and from fungi as well. And when you treat fabric or textiles with this bioproduct, it creates this amazing antibacterial breathable textile. And this shirt, one of our, we have an ambassador for Stature who is an ultra marathon runner. And this guy has been wearing our shirt and all of his ultras. And obviously I'm going to say my brand's amazing, but he has loved wearing this shirt, staying like so light during a hundred kilometer races in 35 Australian degree heat. So I can definitely vouch for the quality of the fabric to perform well. Why is that fabric only in the men's t-shirt, that treatment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we used a different style of fabric for the women's singlet, but that the fabric we used for the men's tee has been amazing. So for the next line, we're looking to develop that in a few other products as well. Great. And so are you using athlete endorsers as your main marketing tactic rather than, say, consumer advertising, which can be very expensive? Yeah. So to this day, we launched in September last year. I have not put much money into advertising at all. And most of the growth and sales have just been from having ambassadors of the brand who are athletes or not even necessarily like serious elite athletes, but maybe someone who has a good profile in the community, but is very active. And I think that's been a really good way to test the product out a bit more and yeah, have someone vouching for the product really, really working. And it's been quite 
successful, I think, so far in using a bit more of an organic approach to growing the business. And what are your challenges? It sounds so trite to say things like, <laughs> oh, what keeps you up at night? But what are your challenges? I mean, aside from, say, like launching just before a global pandemic or whatever, aside from that, what do you have to overcome to get to the next level? Lou, there's so much that keeps me up at night in regards to the business, but it's all really exciting things that then also get me up in the morning. And I like that flip around. I got asked that question once, what keeps you up at night and what gets you up in the morning? And they were actually the same two things. Of course, this is very good that we are now talking in the night in (laughs) of the United States and it is morning for Lily. So we are getting her right when she's excited (laughs) and raring to go. Exactly. I think what I need to overcome or what keeps me up at night. So one of the biggest challenges for a small brand like us is having access to the resources and materials that we really want to be using, but being able to purchase them in a small amount is really, is really, really tricky. Because then you don't get economies of scale. Yes, exactly. And how are you funded? Currently all self-funded. Bootstrapped, as they say. Yeah, yeah. So that's been a really tricky thing because there are solutions out there that I'm so interested in diving into, such as biosynthetic fabrics, which just like blow my mind. They're incredible. But the ability to use them at a really small scale is quite difficult. Either finding ways of us growing before we can get to that stage or how we can collaborate with other small brands who are interested in the same fabrics so that we can buy at a larger scale and then sort of divide as we get to our own manufacturing stages. What are biosynthetics for the listeners who don't know and for me? (laughs) So a biosynthetic is, so your normal synthetic fabrics like a polyester or a nylon, they come from crude oil that's drilled from the ground and magically woven. It's a plastic magically woven into a fabric. Then a biosynthetic, it's still an oil, but the oil comes from a plant. And the ones that I've been looking at and I'm sampling at the moment is from castor beans, so castor oil. So extracting this oil, which doesn't damage the food production or food industry at all by using this in the textile industry, using this oil to create biosynthetics that still have the same capabilities as a normal synthetic fabric, especially for performance, can still do all the same things in terms of moisture wicking, breathability, all those sorts of things. But at the end of its life, this fabric can break down 74% within one year and 100% within five years. Currently, normal synthetic fabrics can take up to 200 years to degrade, but they will still exist in the soil and damage the soil. So this is a major advance if you can get the access to those biosynthetics. Yeah, 100%. Well, so now I want to ask one more, actually two more questions. One, what in your athletic career has prepared you for this entrepreneurial, ecopreneurial career that you are now embarking upon? What qualities from being a top athlete, translate to the business world? Good question. I think the one that comes to mind first is the drive and dedication. People often say athletes are crazy people because they just get up and 
do all this sort of like harm to their bodies day after day and just keep pushing and pushing. And I think having practiced that sort of drive for so many years of doing something, not that you don't want to do it, I want to be doing it, but really pushing yourself every day and having that motivation, I think has definitely helped in the business world of I have learned how to be very dedicated to something. And so those skills of getting up and continuing to push are quite built within me though it is very different being from a team sport to then coming to running a business by myself I commend individual athletes who go out there and do it themselves because having a team is showing to be really quite easy now especially in these circumstances of COVID but running a business it's just you if I don't show up then nothing happens I definitely think the drive is the biggest thing I don't know if this is resonates with you Lily but one thing that I've heard in talking to a lot of athletes for Green Sports Blog and now Green Sports Pod is this idea of problem solving. You're on the court, on the pitch, whatever it might be, and whether it's individual or team, you know, a curveball, pun intended, is thrown at you. And how do you deal with that? You guys are down. How do you deal with that? And I wonder if that also has aspects that relate to the business side? Yeah, definitely. Now that you put that out there, I definitely think it does both on the field, the sort of like quick problem solving reaction, but also the individual response you have to say non-selection or not training well one day or getting injured, your response to a setback, which is going to happen more times probably in a business than when you're an athlete, how you are able to pick up and keep going from something that doesn't go your way is yeah definitely something that has come through from my career as an athlete. So that kind of resonates for me too although I never really realized it at the time. Oh, I'm problem solving. Wait a minute. I'm trying to be a sportscaster when I came out of university and that didn't work out so well so I had to pivot. I had to pivot to I'd like to get into sports marketing, but those jobs weren't available. So I went for a marketing job that wasn't sports. Then I went to sports marketing. And then, you know, (laughs) so it's constantly trying to see what's presented to you, make the best of it, learn along the way, and then make a better decision the next time. Yeah. I'd like to dive in there while you've started talking about your story a little bit, because I'm interested to know sort of if you could go back to the beginning of your story, let's say your climate fight story of when the ideas of sustainability or you started to notice things about the climate, where did that start to appear or what sparked your interest? Well, you know what, this is going to sound really kind of hokey, but this is exactly how it happened. Okay. So (laughs) I was forever from when I was seven years old, I knew I wanted to be in sports. Unlike you at seven years old, I also knew I was not a good athlete. And so I knew that my career, if it was going to be in sports, was not going to be on the field. And so then I decided, like I mentioned before, I wanted to be a sportscaster. I kind of became the guy who knew all the facts and which was, of course, made me very popular. But, you know, sportscaster that moved to sports marketing eventually and that was a cool job because I got to go to the NBA finals and the 
World Series in baseball and got paid to talk sports. And okay, it wasn't on the air, but it was still incredible. And this is now I'm kind of fast forwarding through my early adulthood and through my 30s. And all along, I was a what I call a lowercase e environmentalist. I was into the outdoors. I was a cyclist, a hiker. It certainly animated my environmentalism, animated my voting decisions. But it was not at the passion level that sports was, not even close. And then for me, it was 9-11 happened. My whole life, I've lived in the New York or New York metropolitan area. And on that day, I was working for Sports Illustrated and Sports Illustrated for Kids, actually, at that point. You may have heard of the magazine. And it's in Midtown Manhattan. And 9-11 down at the World Trade Center was about four or five miles south. And I was very fortunate. I didn't know anybody personally in the buildings, but it was this incredible kind of seismic moment that in some sense, COVID now is somewhat akin to that. I likened it to Pearl Harbor, which was my parents' generation. And I felt like I had to do something and I didn't know what that something was. And it didn't come to me for a while. And then fast forward eight, 10 months later, there was a column in the New York Times by this writer, Tom Friedman, who is writing for them today and is Pulitzer Prize winning columnist and author, kind of a global geopolitical thinker writer. And he wrote a column that said, green is the new red, white, and blue. And he said that we in the U.S., we're fueling the wars on terrorism that we were fighting because we were already in Afghanistan and the drumbeat for Iraq was already building by our profligate energy use. We are 4% of the world's population and 25% of the world's energy use. And there's a lot at that time of our energy dollars for transportation were going to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabian government, the royal family takes our oil money and they siphon off some of it to their Wahhabi extremists on their right so that they can stay alive and remain the royal family, the Wahhabis take some of that money and use it to train people to fly planes into buildings. And it was like, because there weren't LEDs then, the compact fluorescent light bulb went off above my head or went on above my head. And I went out and bought a hybrid car. I changed out all my light bulbs. I went 90% vegetarian, 95% vegetarian. Then I got rid of my car. And all of that personal virtue, or so-called, I don't even know if it was virtuous, but let's say it was, that made me feel good for about 10 minutes. And then I said, I got to learn more about this. And I started reading more. And so I did not come to it originally from an environmental point of view. It was from a geopolitical patriotic point of view. And I've never met anybody with that same story, which, and I didn't think I was so unique, but in any case... I started researching and then I started learning about climate change. And then I saw the connection between our profligate energy use, the geopolitical messes we're in, and the climate impacts that exacerbated those same messes. And then I was like, okay, I've got to do this with my work. But you know what? In 2003, 2004, 2005, what were green jobs at the time? It was like putting solar on a roof. And you don't want me anywhere near a roof (laughs) at all, like nowhere near it, unless I'm under it. But I thought, okay, what am I good at? I am good at creating 
a story, telling a story, and selling a story. I'm a communicator, a brander, a marketer, and a business development person. I've done that in sports. Can I do that in green? There were no jobs in it that I could find. So four years after 9-11, almost to the day, I left my corporate job at SI, and I started out as a consultant in the sustainability marketing space. And my positioning is I help companies and or nonprofits with a legitimate green product or service help create the green story, tell the green story through communications, and sell the green stories through business development. And that's what I've been doing since 2005. And climate change just since that point has become, to me, the thing that for the remainder of my work life, my animating goal is to do what I can in whatever small way it is, or big way, hopefully bigger, to help pull us away a little bit from the carbon cliff we're heading for. And that's it. I was going to ask this question towards the end, but it seems fitting to ask it now. If that's your goal and your passion to do that through your work, what is it that's really motivating you to be doing that? Is there a strong personal connection or is it just a realization of of what's wrong and you know it needs doing? That's such a good question. I'll get a little personal. So I did not get married until I was in my mid to late 50s. I don't have kids and not going to have kids. So I feel like this is the thing that I can do for the kids of my friends in my generation and the kids of the next generation, including kids that you might have. This is what is my legacy? This is going to be my legacy. This is what I have to do. And it's become a calling. And I sense that you have the same kind of feeling, obviously coming to it from your place and your lived experience, but it almost doesn't feel like work Mm. now. It feels like, what else would I be doing? And why aren't more people doing it? And so that is why I feel like connecting sports and climate just makes so much sense personally because of my experience in sports and passion for it, but just because of the pull that sports has. And that can help answer why aren't more people into it and passionate about it. I don't know if that answered your question. Oh, no, 100%. I have the same motivation as well on that personal level of doing it for my future hopeful babies and what their environment will be like. But also what you said there, it just doesn't feel like work, any of this, because, yeah, exactly what else would you be doing? Why do you need to be doing anything else? This is the biggest battle, the biggest thing that needs our energy from my perspective. So why not put my energy there? What I'll say is it's not only luck. You're lucky, but it also owes to your personal qualities, your personal values, and your curiosity, I'm guessing, that you were able to find this at a relatively young age. Because I'm the type that has to work in areas of personal passion. But I've gone through stretches where I've worked in jobs just because it was a job and it was it had stature and it had an office and a suit and all of that. And, you know, and it was a good salary, nothing to be ashamed of with that. But it just didn't, 
it felt empty. Mm. And now, I mean, and I'm fortunate in that I did get to work in sports on the business side and it was a blast. And I got to do that and I'm really lucky for that. But now working in in the climate space, I feel like I am so glad for you that you found this where your career is in front of you and you can make just an incredible impact. Thank you. It is really exciting. And the visions and images that I have in my mind of what the future of both stature but the environment could look like is so fueling to the energy that I want to put into all of that. And I suppose that's another thing that keeps me up at night is hoping that that's the way that it does go. If I can dive in a little bit with you, I think we both have a very similar realization of this moment and you've touched on it a little bit, but how sport and the environment are so inherently connected. How have you come to draw that connection with your work? That's also a really good question. And you ask good questions. So <laughs> so you're welcome. Let's go back. Remember in 2005, I started my consulting work. And I would say by 2007, 2008, not that it was that I was like, ah, I made it, but I was on a good path. I had established myself to a certain extent. And I'm trying to think, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? And somewhere in there, 2008, 2009, you know, it's now at this point, it's during the econ apocalypse. And then I'm thinking, I have to think of the next thing. You know, I'm thinking, what do I really care about? I care about figuring out how to, to get us off the carbon cliff. And I care about sports. What if there was, is there an intersection between green and sport? And I literally did not know. But at that point, we had things like the Google machine. And so I started to poke around and I found out now, maybe it's 2010, 2011, there's something called the Green Sports Alliance, which had, was in its nascent stages in early 2011 in the Pacific Northwest of the United States and Canada, places like Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, and the pro sports teams there were like, were sharing best practices or better practices on things like energy efficient lighting and recycling, et cetera. And so I started following them and I started following them some more. And in 2013, I finally said, you know what? I'm going to start a blog, green sports blog. I mean, duh, what else would you call it? <laughs> <laughs> and Because I am then going to meet the people, the movers and shakers in this niche within a niche and I'm going to be able to share my consulting value proposition with them. And hopefully I could help them. And to that extent, to some extent, it's worked out that way. So I've gotten work with a variety of sports-related entities from ESPN to the Super Bowl, the Bay Area Super Bowl 50 host committee, and then to a bunch of companies that are trying to, with a greener product or service, for stadiums and arenas, I connect them to stadiums and arenas. But I didn't know if the blog would take off, but now we get between eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 page views per month. And so within the green sports niche, it is a bit of a thing and I'm known. And now I can get to talk to, well, people like yourself, both I can talk to ecopreneurs, which you are, and I can talk to athletes, which you are. I get to talk to two for the price of one. <laughs> it's awesome. And one thing that I've noticed, and I'll flip this back to you in a sec. So 
2013, I start the blog, and it's really cool. I'm writing about lead certified stadiums and zero waste games, and it still is cool. But I'm thinking in the back of my mind and in the front of my mind too, what problems is are sports trying to solve by greening? Mm-hmm. And to me, the problem that needs to be solved, I mean, is climate change, and then all of the umbrella, the problems underneath that umbrella, from drought, flooding to plastic ocean waste, sea level rise, and all the effects thereof. But sports wasn't really talking about climate change. Mm. So I'll ask you, what has your experience been as a player in sports on the hockey ruse? I love that name. (laughs) What has it been like for you to observe the greening of sports as a player? Is it seeping down? What do your teammates think, you know, as you're going on your journey? I know that's like three questions in one. (laughs) If I can be completely honest, I probably don't see it that much, as in I don't see the organizations that I'm involved in having an approach that is green. I can't really think of ever hearing about it, having an example that I can share. And I think what needs to be done. And I think this is the same whether you're an individual, whether you're an organization in government, whatever it is, that you're looking at what your exact impact is. So for a sporting organization, what is your impact in terms of what your travel is, the impact of your stadium, the waste, the land use, all of those sorts of things, the water use, massive one for sports. And for me, then looking at uniforms, like what are all of the impacts that you're having? What are the solutions to lessen this impact? I cannot see that in my sport and my organization being done at all. Do you see it anywhere else in Australian sport through whether it be, you know, Aussie rules or tennis or the other big sports? Cricket, I know, is big there. Netball, of course. My mind draws to surfing a little bit. I think they have a bit of a, I mean, there's such a good connection there, right, to the environment. It's their their whole sport. Right. And I definitely see a bit more of a push from that sport in reassessing the environmental impact there. Maybe a little bit in tennis, but the only thing, again, I can think of is I think at the Australian Open this year, the tennis net was made out of recycled fishing nets. Like, well done. That's one step. What else is there to do? Yeah, and then they had the bushfires, which were, that was the big story for about Mm. a week and a half, and then COVID. Yeah. (laughs) So it's interesting because in the United States and North America, on the one hand, the greening of sports seems more developed, meaning most stadiums now that are built are built to some degree of lead. Now we have lead platinum stadiums and arenas. You have games in major sports like American football that are zero waste, which means 95%, I'm sorry, 90% of waste is diverted from the landfill. The thing is, see, what I think you're talking about is what I call green sports 1.0, which is the greening of sports, the greening of the games themselves, and I think that is a necessity because sports has to, if they are going to talk the talk, have to walk the walk. But to me, 
1.0 is only getting you to the starting line. Mm. Because the real power of sport, like sports carbon footprint, we can talk about it, right? But the real power of sports is the ability to impact fans. The megaphone that athletes have, it's been on display going back 50 years or more in the United States and other places on civil rights, right? And now it's on display in this moment of George Floyd and systemic racism and racial injustice in the United States and other places, athletes are speaking out. And that's amplifying the message. The big thing I think is for athletes, because athletes are going to lead it. Teams, the hockey roos aren't going to make a big deal about climate change. But Lily Brazel can make a big deal. Lizzie Brazel and her fans and then the people who buy Stature clothing and who get the messaging from Stature, that's the power. And that's 2.0. And that, to me, so Australia, on the one hand, needs to up its green sports 1.0 game, but we don't have time to wait for it to finish 1.0 to get going on 2.0. So I've yeah. given you a big challenge down under. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you have. Maybe we I, should... I hope that's okay. No, I'm, I'm very excited about it, but maybe we should touch on a little bit about what Eco Athletes is. And yeah, thank you. We, yeah, dive into what the mission is, what Eco Athletes is trying to achieve. You've touched a little bit on it here, but I'll let you go with it. Thank you. Eco Athletes is a nonprofit that I and a group of, Green Sports All-Stars launched back at the beginning of April. And kind of building on what I was just talking about before, this is that Green Sports 2.0 on steroids. Our mission is to inspire and coach athletes to speak out on climate change confidently. And in forums or fora that are comfortable for them, that will maximize their reach. We will also measure, because of the miracles of social media, we will measure the amount of people they reach through their green messaging. And over time, we expect that number, that amount to grow, hopefully exponentially. So this is trying to take that 2.0 construct, the power of athletes, and give athletes the power to talk about climate change. The reason why we emphasize coaching, i.e. education, is because in the past three or four years when I've interviewed a bunch of athletes on Green Sports Blog that are interested in the environment and work on plastic ocean waste or they volunteer in hurricane relief or any number of other things, but they don't take that next step to climate. I'm like, why don't you talk about climate? And I get three answers pretty much. One, it's too sciencey and I don't do science. I don't know the science. I don't feel comfortable. Two, it's political and I don't want to get involved in politics. And three, it is I either fly a lot for my team or athletes at the Serena Williams, LeBron James of the income scale. Not that I talk to them. Okay. But they, <laughs> might, they might say, I haven't yet. Serena, if you're listening, would be happy to do an interview. They might say, I've got five cars. I've got eight houses. It's not a good look. 
And I'm thinking to myself as you're saying this, well, I know how to answer that objection. I know how to answer that objection. I know how to answer that objection. We got to answer these objections so we get these people out talking. And so that's how Eco Athletes was born. And for our listeners, I am honored that one of the first five or 10 athletes that have joined our fold as an eco-athlete is none other than Lily Brazel. And she has really, you know, she gets it. Lily, what did you think of when you first heard about eco-athletes? Well, I first heard of it through Amy Steele, who is an Australian netballer. Also one of our supporters. Yes, also an eco-athlete. She is amazing and has so much knowledge when it comes to climate change. Sometimes when I talk to Amy, I'm like, oh, I am out of my depth here. But she's incredible. Yeah, she does climate risk policy for Deloitte Australia. Yeah. No, no, no slouch, Amy. Yeah. So Amy suggested that I just get in touch with you, Lou. And so I sent you an email. I had not even looked up what Eco Athletes was, but I was like, I like the name. Amy has never led me wrong so far, so I'm just going to jump in here and and see what happens. Go your email back. I think I maybe checked out the website or Green Sports blog, and then we met up for a phone call. And honestly, that chat was awesome. I feel like we just connected right away. Absolutely. That was just like, so for the listeners, I mean, I am among the luckiest humans now on the planet because I get to talk to these athletes who get it on climate and who want to make a difference. And Lily is exhibit A. Thank you. I was really excited by our first conversation and then felt very welcomed right away into the eco-athletes community. And after our first chat with the other athletes a couple of weeks ago, I was like, "Mm, I'm excited to be on board with this. To see a group of athletes from different sports around the world all talking about the same topic, having the same connection, concerns about it made me feel not so alone, I guess, because it is a hard thing to talk about to a lot of people. They either... I was going to ask you about that. How is it to talk? Do you talk about it with the hockey ruse and how is that and how do they react? I feel the experience that I often have is that it's my issue that I'm talking about. People are interested in what I am having to say, but they're like, oh, that's Lily's interest. That's Lily's sort of thing that she's working on. And I had a conversation with a couple of girls in the team at the start of the year when the bushfires had just sort of ended. We were coming out of that period. So my family's home on the East Coast, we have a sort of a holiday home on the East Coast of New South Wales. It's where I've spent a lot of my childhood. It was very close to where the fires were. We weren't affected, thankfully. But being back there over Christmas, it was really confronting to see that sort of damage and the angst you have, like wondering if the fire is going to cross the river, is it going to come into our suburb? And so after that sort of ended, I was back in Perth, I was back into training and life was sort of normal again. I had this real, I was calling it climate depression. Like I was just like, what are we doing? How can I do anything? Why am I even playing hockey? Like the world is going to end. Why am I doing all of this? And then you're like, am I going to have kids bring kids into this world? Yeah, it was just this like rabbit hole downfall and feeling really, really quite sad. And 
I was talking to my friends about this, my teammates before a training session, because they could notice I was sad. I was like, guys, I just think I have climate depression. Like, I'm so sad. And the way that they responded to that is they were very kind, but it's like, that's Lily's issue that like she's dealing with. There's no connection that it's related to them. And I've noticed that with other things when people maybe they'll share something with me about climate change or about the environment. They're like, oh, Lily, you'll really like this. Why don't you like it? Why why is this my I just see it as people thinking it's my thing and it's not their thing. I totally get what you're saying. I mean, I'm thinking about it more. There's two worlds, right? There's the world of the climate people that you know and the green sports people that you know. And there, that's what you talk about and everybody is in that world. And okay, you don't even think about it. And then there's the world outside that. In social settings with friends, not in the green world, even if they are, they're all going to be sympathetic in some way, shape, or form. They're not going to be deniers. But I have to overcome my own self, like thinking they're not going to want to talk about this. Or the other thing is they're not asking me about this. So they're not interested in this. And I have to overcome that and bring them in at the same point because you don't also want to be pedantic and lecture people. Oh, you are bad. Mm. That mm. Because I've gone down that, talk about a rabbit hole. I'm telling <laughs> you, that, that, that is one deep rabbit hole right there. Mm-hmm. And that, that does not get you a, a win. Yeah, I've experienced that like, even just like the smallest little things, like I cringe seeing someone use a plastic cup or, or a plastic knife and fork and the time to go to say something is like, oh, I'm such a bad guy by telling them that that's not a great thing to be doing. And it's like just a simple thing like using plastic. Yeah, you feel like a, a lecturer or you're coming in a bit defensive by trying to suggest a better way. Right. And so that's what we at Eco Athletes nice little segue there. At Eco Athletes, what we are going to do is through our climate education courses is it'll be a little bit about the science, but the truth is you don't have to know the science to any great degree. The scientists know that. This is about how you communicate concern about climate, why it's important to the people you are talking to, Find out what their values are. You don't have to think hard to find a climate application to what's important to them and then bring them in that way. And so it's going to be a lot about climate communication, what we're basically just talking about. So we don't get in the rabbit holes. And so because you have as an athlete, a platform that the average person walking down the street does not have, you can use that platform in a positive way and make a difference. And I think with you having stature also as part of your brand, you will be very powerful as a climate communicator. I think touching on what you just said in finding a way to be able to talk to people about it and knowing what their values are and how it connects to those. We were talking about Catherine Hayhoe at the start of this call. I'm pretty sure she's the climate scientist and climate communicator. Yeah, I think she has done a TED Talk on how to talk to people about climate change so that if you have someone who's, say, Catholic, but they don't, then they're not aware or not 
aligned with climate change? How does someone from a totally different background be able to relate and connect to them to start talking about this big issue? Yeah. And so Catherine, and for the listeners, her last name is Hayho, H-A-Y-H-O-E. She is a climate scientist at Texas Tech University and is one of the greatest, if not the greatest climate communicator I have ever heard, such that in 2014, she was named one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people on the planet. Not climate people, just people. And then in 2016, she was interviewed by Leonardo DiCaprio with President Obama. So it was basically Catherine, Obama, and Leo and <laughs> on the White House lawn. So this is who we're talking about. So check her out on her TED Talk. And she is also a supporter of eco-athletes, I might add. Catherine's background is she's evangelical from Canada. She is married to an evangelical preacher who was a climate denier, which he didn't know when they first started dating. And then they obviously overcame that and he came to his senses and they ended up getting married, etc. And now they're at Texas Tech University, which is in Lubbock, Texas, which is in the most conservative congressional district in the United States. And so she basically tries to talk climate to evangelical doubters and deniers, etc. And she finds out yeah. what is what is important to whoever it is she's talking to, and then shows how they already are concerned about climate. They just don't even know it yet. So that's what we want to do with Eco Athlete. Mm. And so yes, she does have a TED talk and go watch it. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a really good one. After I watched that, I felt a lot more confident about what I was trying to do, but I'm hoping as well through through eco-athletes that will be the response personally for me to feel more confident of, of sharing this passion of mine, but to be a bit more of, I said, I was reflecting once that I feel like that climate change is often told as this like a global story rather than a personal story. So how you can find your own personal story connection to it. I'm excited to, to develop that through eco-athletes and how I can help in that aspect. Well, we are excited to help you develop that. And we are excited to have you on the eco-athletes team. And we are excited to have official eco-athletes active wear from stature if it's allowed to be shipped to the United States and elsewhere. Is it only for now, you can only buy it in Australia and New Zealand? Yeah, for now, only Australia and New Zealand. But I'm going to point my finger at you. We steer clear of saying active wear because I feel like that has a very like, in Australia at least, I'm not sure about the United States, it has a bit of a negative connotation. What do we call it? We refer to it as performance apparel or athletic apparel. There you go. Performance apparel, athletic apparel. Yeah, active wear in Australia is like the mom who's chucked on like her really cool outfit and she's getting a coffee, but she hasn't worked out all day. Yep. You know what? I I (laughs) stand corrected and I deserve to be corrected. That was not, that is performance apparel from stature. And what is the website What's the URL for people who want to check it out, who are in Australia and New Zealand, or maybe people anywhere in the world who are listening to this and just want to check it out? 
Yeah, you can find us on the web at www.statureclothing.com.au. On Instagram and Facebook, our handle is Stature Australia. Great. And I have one question. Now, how are the hockey roos looking heading into Tokyo 2021? And where are you positioned in terms of being in the team? Oh, big question. And if I can be honest with you, this period of time of COVID, as for everyone, has been very challenging for myself with the postponement of the Olympics, with our training environment being closed down and everyone sort of dispersing over the country back to their hometowns. It's really made me question if hockey is what I'm meant to be doing as I've felt during this time, just seeing like clearly seeing how connected the world is on an issue like COVID just makes me go like, how can we not see this with climate change? It's just like a, it's almost the world, like a bit of a blessing, like here's your learning, you better learn from this. And I'm so concerned that we're not. And so I've been questioning with this bigger issue of climate change, if sport is really part of my picture to try and solve this issue. And I've spent a lot of time over the last three months thinking about that question. And and yes, it is. is. I'm still so driven and passionate about playing elite sport and fulfilling that dream I've had since I was seven years old of playing at the Olympics. That's incredible. And yeah, like it gives me goosebumps being able to say that. It gives me goosebumps just to be able to hear it. (laughs) So yeah, that dream is definitely very much alive. We still haven't returned yet as a team back to training. So we're still split up, but slowly going back in the next couple of weeks. So of how we're tracking towards Tokyo, I still don't, I still don't know yet what our team will look like, how everyone will have adapted and reshaped after this period of time and how we go about our team. What I guess a big question mark for me was how we as a team respond to this in terms of what is necessary, what are we doing, what can we be doing differently? Not so much in terms of climate change, but I think this time has really given people the chance to rethink what they've been doing. How can it be done differently? And I hope we take that opportunity to really set ourselves up for Tokyo. It's still so far away, so I I can't really I can't really even say how I think we'll be faring for that competition and and where I sit within the team. I'm obviously very driven and hopeful that I will be a part of the team and it will be a successful campaign. But as I reflected with my coach the other day, getting selected is out of my control. Going to the Olympics and winning is out of my control. We could rock up and all the umpires for some reason are totally on the other on the other side. They're giving us red cards here and there, then disallowing all of our goals. All the other teams could be miraculously so much better than us. So I'm sort of reworking it in how I can really enjoy and relish this experience whether or not either of those outcomes of going and winning even happen how can it still be enjoyable and that is the kind of zen way of looking at it right you control what you can control yeah but i have a feeling just knowing you i know that if there comes a time when you're either 
have your chance to really rip a shot at the goal where it needs to go when the game is on the line. Somehow I think you're the one who that the hockey roos want to be taking that shot. Lou, if that happens in the Olympics, I will run and find a camera and be like, Lou, <laughs> you said this. Remember, I said this in June of 2020. <laughs> Yeah. The other thing I was going to say is, because I didn't know where you were going to go with the, is hockey right for me? Da, 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 da. And I was going to say, oh, if she says no, I'm going to say no. Because <laughs> your platform, when you make the team, not if, but when you make the team and they interview you for the Sydney Morning Herald or whatever it's called, and you're going to say, you know what? I also have this business and I'm climate is what I'm about. Da, 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 da. And that's going to reach many people. You have the platform. Mm. So don't throw it away. So I'm glad you said yes. <laughs> yeah, I think I said to you when you first interviewed me for Eager Athletes, the little blog right up there of me joining the team. I think I said something about how as athletes, yeah, we are sort of blessed with this platform straight away. People somehow just will care about what we have to say because we play sport. And I think being able to use that for a really important issue like climate change is really exciting and provides me probably with a bit more motivation to to keep at it because it does make people more interested, I suppose. Thank you so much for being a part of Green Sports Pod and for having me on The State of Us. Thank you so much. Well, Lily, we are glad you're going to keep at it on the field hockey pitch and are rooting hard for you to make the hockey ruse for Tokyo 2021, and for that matter, for the Tokyo Olympics to take place. We also will follow Stature Clothing Australia's growth trajectory. And we look forward to listening to future The State of Us podcasts. You know, with all that you have going on, I need to keep up my end of the bargain to ensure that we have another State of Green Sports pod podcast. You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.